You're listening to Cancer Covered. I mean, in some ways, it's an irresistible idea, and it took a long time for us to to get past it. Yeah, that radical mastectomy with muscle removal became the standard breast cancer surgery for decades and decades following. What's really striking about the radical mastectomy is even during Halstead's time, and as he's doing these case series of mastectomy after mastectomy of increasing aggression and celebrating that he's able to get clear margins and resect the tumor, they can still look at the survival rates and and show definitively that the cures were just not resulting from the surgery. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. Like it or not, the past has a powerful influence on how we think. Even some of our most stubborn biases come from a history we may not quite remember. The surgical treatment of breast cancer was trapped like that for almost a century. To better understand how that happened, I sat down with my partner and fellow history enthusiast, Dr. Matthew Ryan. Matthew, there's a question I get a lot when I meet a new cancer patient in the clinic, and I bet it's the same question you get very often. You know which question I'm talking about? Uh, no, go ahead. Why can't we just cut it out? Yeah, no, you're right. We get that question a lot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can. Sometimes we can. But many times, cancer is a systemic disease. Mm-hmm. And what you can see on the surface or on the scans doesn't represent all of the cancer. But it's an understandable, almost visceral wish to, I have this thing, I want you to rid me of this thing, dive in and get rid of it. I agree completely. And I've been rereading Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee's excellent history of cancer, the emperor of all maladies recently. And one of the things that strikes me is, you know, there's nothing really new under the sun. Yeah. Cancer patients are not the only ones in history that have felt like the solution's got to be simple. It's obvious, right? We just need to cut it out, even if we need to cut deeper and wider. It's so simple. It's staring us right in the face. Right, until you've resected a breast and major muscles underneath the breast mm-hmm. and lymph nodes near the breast. And mm-hmm. and yes, when you've removed all that, you can temporarily feel good. But if cancer is a systemic disease, as we know it is, then you're not really treating the entire cancer. Right. We've known about cancer as far back as the ancient world, and there were surgeries as far back as the ancient world. Why weren't people experimenting with radical cancer surgeries earlier? They may have been, but they didn't have the tools we have now. They didn't have anesthesia, mm-hmm. though they could you know, strap someone down and, and do surgery if, if they wanted. But you can't do an intricate dissection that way, which cancer yeah. often you know, requires. It's You've got to get it done as quickly as you can because you're not going to have long before they either kick loose or go into shock. Yeah, and if you look at some of the earliest you know, medical texts and what looks like they're discussing cancer, they often say that it's best to leave it alone, that anything you do will actually make it worse. But then once 
anesthesia developed and then especially antisepsis developed, uh, it opened the door for some real experimentation in surgery. And, and some success um, mm-hmm. by being able, you know, we've been talking about breast cancer a lot by removing the breast called mastectomy. Mm-hmm. Some women were cured of their breast cancer that previously weren't. And then that early success kind of led to natural thoughts that if some surgery is good and curing women, but not all women are cured, then naturally the next step would be to do more surgery mm-hmm. and to do deeper dissections. Mm-hmm. And um, originally taking you know a, a minor muscle with it, which didn't have a lot of long-term consequences, but when women still were having recurrence, mm-hmm. and because again, it's a systemic disease and surgery won't cure everyone, then the natural step after that was you know, removing major muscles. We know some of the earliest surgical innovators in radical cancer surgery were in Germany and Austria in, you know, 1870s or so, physicians like Bill Roth and and Volkman who innovated really creative ways of removing parts of the stomach for stomach cancer and bowel cancer and reconnecting parts of them. I mean, we still, you know, there's still some surgical procedures named after Bill Roth. And it wasn't uncommon at the time for, you know, because residency programs and medical schools uh, didn't always have a standardized curriculum. So surgeons in training, it was really common for them to travel overseas and study with people who were pioneering different approaches in different places. And that led to Dr. Halstead Mm -hmm. uh, going to Europe, learning some of these cancer surgery techniques, and then bringing it back to New York. Mm Mm-hmm. It takes a special kind of person to try to solve a surgical problem that had failed for centuries. Someone meticulous, relentless, maybe even obsessive and unbalanced. And Dr. William Halstead fit that profile perfectly. He was willing to do almost anything to achieve a surgical cure for breast cancer, and he drove himself, his staff, and his patients to brutal limits. When he encountered surgeons less willing than him to push their patients to extremes, He dismissed those surgeons as being held back by misplaced kindness. Yeah, what we know about Halstead is he was really attracted to that idea of radical surgery uh, in Turing, Bill Roth, and and some of uh, Folkman's surgeries, presumably attending them uh, or watching them the way they did in these operative theaters, you know, where the surgeon would be standing at the bottom of almost this bowl and he'd have students and faculty members watching, you know, in, in a classroom style yeah, above. I, I saw that on Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> but Dr. Halstead was really inspired by that to take that approach to breast surgery, which hadn't really been done before. And you're right, he started in uh, New York. He'd done his residency in Bellevue before he had had toured in Germany. And what we know of Halstead personality is that he was extremely intense and extremely driven, very meticulous as anybody at the time surgically, particularly a surgical innovator, I'd be interested in radical surgery, would have to be, uh, that he worked obsessively. And that after not too many years uh, working at Bellevue Hospital in New York, which is where he did his residency, that he, he had his first nervous breakdown. And it was the first of a series of nervous breakdowns throughout his life. So he had a really, really labile personality. 
my understanding is, you know, he took every recurrence of a breast cancer incredibly personally and mm-hmm. and asked himself, you know, what more could he have done and would more surgery have changed the outcome? Mm-hmm. So it's not too surprising that, you know, you would see this these innovations from Germany and Austria and, and want to bring it back. So his early post-residency practice was in New York, and we know that he had a dazzling reputation and that he worked tirelessly. We also know that he burned the candle at both ends and socialized a lot, uh, that his friends worried about him a lot, uh, you know, worried about the corrupting influence of, of New York. It also appears that uh, during this time, because of the hours that he kept and his desire to keep working, that this was when he first started experimenting with cocaine as a way yeah, to work long Cocaine long. was actually used as one of the early anesthetics. Mm-hmm. So t- to accomplish his surgeries, he was well aware of that and mm-hmm. started experimenting on himself, Mm -hmm. found that he could do more in a certain way. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. And while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set, we all agree on this one simple idea. Hi, I'm Dr. Gayu, a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. And these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them. Hi, I'm Madison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day. Our patients and physicians agree. Sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in-person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support. So it's around 10 years after he's been practicing in New York that he gets this opportunity and there's evidence that the opportunity was was brought to him, not least because of some of his friends and professional colleagues that really worried about Halstead continuing to practice in in New York and what they thought were you know, the bad influences of the city and maybe some of his some of his uh, his drug habits, which seemed to have some people seem to have started to understand uh, was an issue for him. So he, in 1889, was offered the chair of a surgical department at a new medical school, medical research university, uh, Johns Hopkins in Maryland. Uh, And he took it and he moved out there. And it was there that he developed uh, a renowned surgical program. But he also developed, in some ways, this really secluded culture. He controlled the surgeons that came in. He, because of how regimented he was and the way he taught and what he demanded of them, he made them in his own image, obsessive, driven, and and they worshipped him. And it was there that he really started 
pioneering the radical mastectomy, which is cutting ever wider, removing more muscle from not just the breast, but the part of the, the chest wall, sometimes even removing ribs. He, he really believed that if he just persisted enough and pressed hard enough, that he'd be able to cut wide enough and deep enough that the cancer and all traces of it would be removed. And I mean, in some ways, it's an irresistible idea. And it took a long time for us to, to get past it. Yeah, that radical mastectomy with muscle removal became the standard breast cancer surgery for decades and decades following. Mm -hmm. What What's really striking about the radical mastectomy is even during Halstead's time and as he's doing these case series of mastectomy after mastectomy of increasing aggression and celebrating that he's able to get clear margins and resect the tumor, they can still look at the survival rates and, and show definitively that the cures were just not resulting from the surgery. You know, any, and we as oncologists now, you know, can recognize that any tumor that needs a surgery that radical has already spread itself microscopically so wide and so far that all the surgery in the world is not going to prevent an eventual recurrence. But Halstead was utterly incapable of seeing what his own data was showing him and not partially because of his personality, probably also partially because of the echo chamber that he built around himself. I mean, it wasn't just him, but it was his colleagues and his hand-picked successors and the people that he trained who thought like him. That were the next generation of leaders in the field. And for generations after that. Yeah. You know, um, and it took a really, really long time for somebody to push back against what by then was dogma that you had to have a radical mastectomy or you just weren't taking proper care of patients. Right. It, it was very hard to walk back. Thankfully, um, it started to happen. First, a modified radical mastectomy, going back to sparing the major uh, chest wall muscles. And then finally, lumpectomy. Mm -hmm. Halstead's radical mastectomy succeeded in removing breast cancer, at least for a while but it left women with severely disfigured bodies. And besides those immediate problems, it still didn't get rid of the cancer long-term. What happens to a woman after one of these Halsteadian mastectomy in the immediate aftermath? I mean, when you talk about removing the, the muscle under the breast, which is a pectoralis major, I mean, what, what does that do? Yeah, I've actually seen uh, maybe two patients that had that surgery that lived you know, decades afterwards. Uh, probably from their surgery in the 50s and early 60s. And for one, they have a, a major chest wall defect. You know, that half of the chest is is missing and all that muscle is missing. So it's down to the ribs. And then that muscle is part of how we move our arm. So they don't have the same use of their arm. They have pretty poor use of their arm after that surgery. And finally, we haven't talked a lot about, but uh, another area of progress is you know, going from axillary dissection, removing all of the lymph nodes under the arm to only moving, removing what's needed. And that very radical surgery led to very severe lymphedema. Which is swelling of the arm because there's just no drainage channels for the lymph, which is the filtrate of the blood, which yeah. is naturally made to, to get back to the heart. 
where that arm could be three to four times the size of the other arm. Mm. And it's not just a cosmetic problem. I mean, that's a, that's a functional problem. Yeah. Uh, it causes it can lead to infections and actually cause secondary cancers. Yeah. But none of that was enough to discourage people from this Halsteadian vision of what was right. And, you know, even the evidence wasn't enough. Some of the first people to push back, one of the first was a physician named Jeffrey Keynes, uh, who operated at a St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. And in 1927, he published a case report of a more limited surgery he'd done on a woman uh, where he simply removed the tumor and didn't do the radical surgery. The reason at the time was because of the woman's other medical problems. He thought she simply would not tolerate the, you know, the full radical mastectomy and might die immediately as a result of the surgery. He thought, well, better a half measure and, you know, than, than no measure at all. The results were better than, you know, the purists would have would have expected. So uh, he and others began experimenting uh, with more limited surgery. But, you know, they were almost immediately shouted down by the Halsteads. Yeah, they were going against dogma. They were, mm -hmm. the belief was that the bigger surgery was so right that it was unethical to do a smaller surgery. And they had a nickname, a derisive nickname for the surgery that they did. They called it a lumpectomy, mockingly, which is still what we call the procedure today. You know, it's another one of those historical examples of taking a slur and making it your own. Even then, when, you know, as far back as 1927, when we've got increasing evidence that the radical surgery isn't necessary, and that if you do more limited surgery, particularly when you're combining it with some of the emerging treatments like chemotherapy, like radiation, which was already in use at this time, um, and then later with some of the hormonal therapies that you know, we don't really need all that radical surgery to get not just as good a results, much better cure results uh, than we ever would have gotten with a radical mastectomy. But still, it took, I mean, how long, Matthew, yeah. for a radical mastectomy to, to fall completely by the wayside? Yeah, it was really until the 70s that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people were able to offer less surgery and not get mocked. So just under 100 years from the time of a, you know, an innovation that really didn't pan out until we finally abandoned it, not you know, partly by dint of the force of personality of the person who drove it and by his generations of, of devoted followers afterwards, but also because of the irresistible pull of what seems an obvious truth. If you could just cut the thing out, problem solved. Halstead's simplistic vision of a surgical solution still resonates powerfully in the public mind. And well-publicized reports of some cancer survivors opting for bilateral mastectomy because of their unique risk factors has created a misplaced enthusiasm for mastectomy, even when it may not be needed. Sometimes the obvious and intuitive isn't what actually winds up being true. Yeah, I, I think until our understanding that advanced cancer is a systemic disease, that held us to truly treating it correctly. And that's not to say that surgery has no role in the treatment of breast cancer, even mastectomy sometimes. I mean, we, we do know that, that, that that's still a critical part of the treatment of certain types of breast cancer. Yeah, it's still a very good option for many situations, and it's the correct option for, for some situations as well. But we're talking about a very different type of mastectomy than a Halsteadian radical mastectomy. 
Correct. Modified radical mastectomy is the name for the current procedure and the muscles spared. Mm -hmm. Right. That same belief you were talking about, that more surgery is better, has also kind of led in the, I'd say, the popular press that cure rates are affected by things such as bilateral mastectomy. Again, a necessary and correct procedure in someone that has a very high lifetime risk of cancer, such as a genetic mutation or other circumstances, but the bilateral mastectomy by itself doesn't change the cure rate of an individual cancer. No, no. I, I mean, in, you know, I mean, you and I both see this, uh, particularly in the wake. I mean, we call it the Angelina Jolie effect. I think there have even been some op-ed pieces in JCO uh, referring to it as that. I mean, Angelina Jolie, who, and, and by the way, had a very correct procedure for her particular problem. She carries a genetic predisposition to cancer. I forget which one of the BRCA mutations it is, but for women who carry certain types of uh, genetic problems, the lifetime risk of breast cancer is so high that up, up to eighty percent. Yeah, in up, some cases, upfront bilateral mastectomy is a very, very good option, and not just that, but also uh, often removal of the ovaries as well, because their lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is extremely high. But press being what it is, and then you know the the public sees this; they see this in a powerful, popular, privileged person misunderstand some of the details. And they're like, no, 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 I want the best. And that must be what Angelina Jolie got. I want exactly what she got without really recognizing the distinctions, the critical distinctions between her particular cancer situation and and theirs. We spend a lot of time at those initial visits um, kind of walking that back. Mm -hmm. And in the end, we may still choose a bilateral mastectomy, but only after there's the understanding that it's not changing the cure rates of that that cancer. Mm-hmm. There's something surgery can't do, you know, for very, very radical surgeries for really, really large tumors. It can wind up being about as effective as closing the barn door after the, the horse is already out. I mean, the problem isn't the local tumor anymore. It's the seeds of the cancer that have already escaped and will lead to eventual relapse way over here. Matthew, what do you think we can learn from the story of Halstead? Yeah, and I think it's Similar to other things that we've learned along the way, that more isn't always better, Mm -hmm. that each situation needs to be evaluated appropriately, and you pick the surgery that matches the situation. That's the key. I think for me, one of the powerful lessons of Halstead and his legacy is it may be, like George Bernard Shaw said, that all progress depends on the vigorous efforts of fundamentally unreasonable people. And I think Halstead was pretty clearly one of those. But however grateful we might be for some of the early steps that people like Halstead and other stubbornly committed people can can bring us, at the end of the day, we have to subject the fruits of their determination to rigor and criticism and dogma and echo chambers are always a a path down a dark, dark place and ultimately lead to more setbacks than... Shutting down progress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We could have been doing lumpectomies, you know, 60 years before before we really started doing them as, as, as a matter of course, if, if not for just the committed belief. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, 
read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com. Music.